Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, uh, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and, and safe, and how much money does does our current water system cost in the U.S., what changes can we make and how we use water. I just listened to a fantastic episode called Water in Peace, Hydropolitics. It was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water. We've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions. And one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources. So now there's all of these uncomfortable, to say the least, conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources. Fantastic episode. The Waterline Podcast is an initiative of Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. So check it out for everything you need to know about the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water. Search for Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Today, once again, we're talking a little neuroscience and drug addiction and uh, kind of a different um, specialized facet of the subject than, than we've talked about before, built, really building a full picture um, of, of how the brain actually works on drugs. Spoiler alert, it is nothing like frying an egg, uh, nothing at all. Um, that's what I like about you guys. You guys are actually interested in understanding how life actually works and reality we are in the minority out there and uh i need you guys <laughs> I, I i uh we need more people getting actual uh information out into the world rather than uh stupid egg metaphors so thank you so much for tuning in as always tuning in downloading and downloading up, sure, whatever. Quick date plug. Um, some of these dates are, are club dates. You just got to check the schedule, shanemoss.com, where I'm doing um, some of some of them. I'm doing my regular club set through the week and also doing a good trip on uh, on an off night as well. So some of these dates you can potentially see two different shows of yours truly. Uh, like in Seattle, coming up, Winnipeg, that same case. I think we're doing that in Minneapolis, definitely in Grand Rapids. Um, and then I'm, I have to check myself, but I'm in, in Oregon, I'm doing um, some shows in Richmond, Bend, Newport, and Lincoln City, doing this Undertow Comedy Festival in Lincoln City. Got Jamaica Psilocybin Retreat coming up in May. I'm so excited for that. I hope you guys come out for that. And uh, I think there's still a few more spots left. Um, I think it's going to be so much more fun. And once again, uh, look at the price of it. It's it's all inclusive. So know that when you look at the price. So in my opinion, it's actually quite a bargain for a 10-day long vacation. If you can't make it all 10 days, maybe they can work with you too. Um, if if uh, you can't get that much time off work or whatever. 
So uh, just get a hold of mycomeditations.com and find out more there. Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My guest today has a PhD in neuroscience. He is a postdoc at WSU Vancouver and is the founder of Rewire Neuroscience. John Harkness joins me. Hello, John. Hi. Thanks for giving me a tour of the labs and and everything and, and bringing me in early. I don't always uh, I don't always get the full tour. Well, yeah, you got to see where the magic happens. This is it was really exciting. Um, uh, so I got to see where, um, uh, where the cocaine is delivered to rats, uh, today, which uh, I've never gotten to see that before. Um, so, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, how you got into, well, now working with cocaine. Um, why am I saying it like that? Cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it in the least cool way. I'm saying it yeah. like a, like a undercover cop would say it or something. <laughs> Do you guys have any cocaine? <laughs> um, so, so you study, basically we're going to be talking today a little bit about neuroplasticity, about how, um, what, what changes can possibly be made in the brain that can, um, possibly free maybe eventually free people of uh of drug addiction or yeah. or offer some hope in right. in the treatment of drug addiction which is super exciting uh in in the meantime um these these mice and rats get to have a whole lot of fun um and we get to learn from them so how did you get involved in doing this in the first place yeah i guess i actually started in a meth lab so moving to cocaine <laughs> has been a neat transition for me <laughs> <laughs> that's uh that's there's a lot of people that get their start in a meth lab yeah yeah that, my uh, mom is super proud of that <laughs> <laughs> no this it was a another lab that studied methamphetamine instead of sure. cocaine uh yeah and in grad school we were looking for some genes that are associated with methamphetamine use in mice and so this was really cool research you know kind of the idea that uh you know a person or a mouse might have a propensity to like meth if they tried it. And, you know, that's, of course, a risk factor for them. Uh, so if we figured out the genetics behind it, then, you know, we know a little bit more about it. That's strange that there's a genetic predisposition to something that is relatively new. So it's it's just hijacking some other reward system. That's Well, it's, you know, it's really along the lines of if you try it and you have a good experience with it, you might do it again. Right. So like alcohol is a really good example of this. Like mm -hmm. the first time everyone tries drinking, they have to make a decision about uh, how did that feel? You know, and like usually we think the taste kind of sucks, but you feel you know liberated and kind of happy. And so it's good. And so a lot of us go back and, you know, you'll drink again. Uh, whereas if you had a really bad experience right off the bat, like if you got sick or, you know, if you uh, yeah, had to run from cop. That's right. <laughs> you know, you might decide that alcohol just isn't for you. And and who knows, maybe you would move down the road then and, and try meth or you try, you know, something else, you'd find another drug. So, you know, it kind of goes along the line of thinking that we're all just searching for that right fix for us. Yeah. So. <laughs> 
There's got to be some shortcut out there to happiness. Maybe there's an app for that. Uh, you can help people decide which drug is going to be the one they want. <laughs> That's a very good idea. I think I think you just invented a new product uh, for 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 Rewire. There, yeah, uh, it's, it's a little different than your usual stuff, but. That's uh yeah I, I like taking personality tests and things like that that could uh, that could help yeah you are prime for meth you should really try it yeah no, no like, is... I'm I'm a laid back guy so speed is not really my my cup of tea <laughs> that, that sort of thing um uh, so so uh anyway starting you started with meth. Yeah, so so we were looking at uh well we were looking at some mice that we bred to really like meth right and. You know, there was something strange about them. We needed to figure out why this was the case. If they try it, they always liked it. Uh, and it turned out that we had bred this, you know, kind of like breeding dogs, right? Like you're breeding golden retrievers versus black labs. We just, we selected for this behavior over time. Uh, and mm. so when we started diving into some of the genetics, we figured out that all of these mice that liked meth a lot had a mutated version of this, this one particular gene. And it's called uh, TAR or TAR1. Um, and this was cool because no one had described, uh, tar one having this effect before. So, you know, we were kind of on the forefront of that. Um, we figured out that, that this gene actually predicted like half of, uh, the, the behavior of these mice so, or predicted half of their propensity to like methamphetamine. Uh, so it's a really powerful predictor of this behavior and, you know, hopefully down the road, understanding that can, could lead to a treatment. You know, if we can find that same sort of mutation in humans, uh, you know, there's there's definitely some some therapeutic potential, or if we can potentially eventually domesticate the meth addict, uh, like we have done with wolves <laughs> by selectively breeding them. <laughs> it's another possibility. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm just brainstorming. It's good here. to spitball it. There's lots of directions to go with this. So that that is. Uh, do you know what? else the gene was doing uh, yeah yeah so so tar1 is uh is actually a, a monoamine receptor so it's a lot like a dopamine receptor as in dopamine is a monoamine um and tar1 just happens to be a receptor for some uh monoamine uh molecules so a lot like dopamine you know there are a number of other molecules out there that are uh the precursors or metabolites of dopamine uh will bind to this tar1 receptor it turns out that meth also binds to this receptor with with pretty high affinity uh and that's important because it seems like if meth is binding to this receptor then you know it's leading to a, a whole cascade of changes in a cell that that wouldn't be there if meth isn't binding to the receptor so the mutation that uh that we kind of uh uncovered in these mice turned out to limit meth's ability to bind to that receptor. So if meth isn't binding, then, you know, these mice aren't experiencing some effect of meth. And, and we think what was happening is they weren't experiencing some of the aversive effects of methamphetamine. So they try it and they're like, hey, this is great. I'm going to do it again. And yeah, they used it all the time. <laughs> hmm. they, so they weren't experiencing the, some of the negative effects of it, like the, the withdrawal or something like that? Well, you know, I think it's actually more along the lines of like the, you know, kind of aversion from like maybe the stimulation. So you know, we, we did some research down this road and it's really hard to, to figure out exactly what a mouse is feeling. Uh, but we, we had some evidence to suggest that the mice that didn't like meth 
didn't like it because they had this big stress response, right? So they don't know what's going on. They get injected with methamphetamine and they're like, oh, hey, this is kind of intense. Uh, and you know, they, <laughs> they're like, I'm not going to do that again. Uh, and so the, my, the, the mice with the mutation probably didn't have that experience. And for whatever reason, you know, maybe they just, just experienced some of the positive effects and, uh, huh. and so they would go on and, and drink it. Actually, we were, we were letting them drink this methamphetamine. <laughs> so, yeah. So some of them after being up for three days straight, they're like, I did not care for that experience. And others were just totally cool. Like, it yeah, got a lot of cleaning it. done. <laughs> Um, it, yeah, that's, huh. So do you think it might be possible to do this in humans eventually? You can get a genetic test and then you can be like, hey, I better stay away from meth or, uh, or <laughs> right. alcohol or whatever. I mean, it, yeah. seem, it seems like there's a big correlation with genetics and drug use. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, there definitely are some, some risk factors that have been identified like in, you know, familial alcoholism, right? So, you know, if you have a, a father or a family member that's an alcoholic, you know, you probably have some higher, greater chance of of having that same problem. Um, how do you and, know it's how do you know it's like a gene specifically for something like and, and not not a gene for like truck driving? <laughs> it's just you no, know, they happen to be genetically predisposed to truck driving and therefore also did math, not the other way around. I mean, yeah, that's a really good point. And <laughs> And, you know, that's one of the hard parts about this, this sort of research. Like when we're, when we're doing this in mice, like we are, we are kind of looking for a needle in a haystack, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there are so many genes that have, you know, change basically between, uh, you know, one, what the, between truck drivers and non-truck drivers. So how do you decide like which one of those made you a truck driver? <laughs> and, you know, to, to really be certain about that is, is, pretty much well no it's not impossible it's very hard it's very hard to do and it doesn't happen very often you know especially for high order behaviors like this like there are a lot of things that make somebody decide that you know meth is right for them right. <laughs> and and <laughs> having this one gene is you know maybe just a small part of that hmm. but you know if it it will help you down the road right you know it helps you go down that road too to hmm. trying it or deciding that you like it. So, you know, if we, if we figure out, or if that, I'm, I'm now not part of that research. This was in grad school, but if that group goes on and figures out that there is, uh, you know, a, a, a similar mutation in humans and that they can test for it, then, you know, that could be useful information to somebody to say like, uh, you know, this is, this is something I should really stay away from. Or, you know, maybe there are some, uh, some medications or some treatments that, you know, would help me in, uh, in my methamphetamine addiction or something like that. Um, or going along with your app and maybe there is something and maybe they're like you will be able to handle alcohol really well like, <laughs> you, right, are, yeah. you are genetically predisposed to doing lsd in large quantities and often <laughs> you have a gene that says you're really going to like meth you should you should think about that <laughs> <laughs> so uh so now that you're at um, wsu vancouver what do you do yeah yeah so changed over from meth upgraded to cocaine um and fancy <laughs> yeah it's it's you know it's a much classier party <laughs> that's right yeah actually it's funny i mean it is uh you, you talk about like the difference in the drugs at like the street level you know like oh methamphetamine you know super cheap and whatever it's the same like in the research right. world like cocaine is really expensive for our lab to buy whereas methamphetamine is like actually really cheap you mm. know so it's, it's kind of a weird what similarity. is it, what's the difference between meth and cocaine and a uh as 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 someone who's never done math, but I <laughs> have done cocaine. Okay, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm curious, but I've done uh, I did uh, 
I've done Ritalin or Adderall or something. I forget which one. I I think I've done Adderall like four times where I I had like an eight hour car ride to do (laughs) on the road and was hungover and someone gave me one of these things. And I was like, oh, that's a, this is break open that emergency kit. This is exactly the time to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you, you figured out one of the differences right there. Like, you know, methamphetamine tends to be a much longer high. Mm Um, you know, it can last for a couple of hours, whereas cocaine is typically very short lived. One of the really interesting differences between the drugs is, is you know, at the molecular level, like what's going on in the cell. Um, so methamphetamine is kind of this like active drug in the sense that it's causing this release of dopamine and other monoamines into the synapse. So, you know, everything that's going on in a cell normally is augmented uh, once you take methamphetamine. You know, it's going in and it's it's releasing all this dopamine and it's preventing that dopamine from going away. So the communication between, you know, one neuron and the next neuron is just heightened. Cocaine, on the other hand, doesn't cause that active release to the same extent. It's actually just preventing any of that dopamine from being taken back up into the cell. So... Mm-hmm. You know, from from one standpoint, like if you didn't have any dopamine release in the first place, like cocaine wouldn't do anything for you, whereas methamphetamine would, you know, cause this big dump. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of an interesting difference between the two. Um, but yeah, from like the subjective level, like what you're feeling, uh, I don't know. We're going to have to go talk to the mice. I, I don't think I could tell you. <laughs> well, that's I, I mean, now that I think about it more, that would be a really interesting thing for um parents or something to know if if their child might be prone to having problems with uh amphetamines in general and they're but they're diagnosed with adhd or something like that that would help inform their choice yeah that's absolutely right yeah so um so talk about your uh your work here right right so what we're doing here is is along the same lines that you know we're interested in and how a person that's, you know, suffering from like cocaine use disorder or, a, you know, a substance use disorder could find a way away from that can, you know, start an effective treatment and potentially recover. And so in this case, we're, we're interested in how a person is forming memories about cocaine and how we could potentially manipulate that. So, uh, so rather than looking at the genetics of methamphetamine or the genetics of cocaine use, we're, we're more interested in how the brain is recording that memory. Mm. So how does the brain record memory? So we, we're looking at a, a structure in the brain called the perineuronal net. And this is a really interesting structure because it's, it's kind of been overlooked in like modern research. Uh, and I think the, the first time the perineuronal net was described was like in the late 1800s by, uh, by Golgi, right? And he, he kind of saw this, this like corset. He described it, a corset that surrounds a neuron. And he assumed that this corset would kind of, you know, keep the neuron in place and also uh, insulate it from some of the, you know, electrical charges outside of the cell. But after he described this, uh, one of the other neuroanatomists of the time, uh, Call, saw this and said, oh, you know, there's there's nothing there. That's just an artifact of the histological process. And, you know, you shouldn't give it much more consideration. And, and nobody did for a long time uh, until much more recently we started to realize that these perineural nets uh, are kind of a, a special form of this extracellular matrix that surrounds all of our neurons. And uh, when when that extracellular matrix consolidates around a neuron, it can kind of uh, regulate the plasticity of that cell. 
So, you know, plasticity, neuroplasticity is really important to how our brain adapts to the environment, how our brains develop, but it can also be important for how our brain forms or stores memories. So how are these formed on the neuron? Can you talk? This is the first time we've talked about what, what are they called again? I'm, I'm going to neuronal nets perineuronal nets yeah yeah so perineuronal nets. okay <laughs> i know i've read the term before but uh i've never said it out loud before <laughs> yeah you know it's it's a really new area of research i honestly didn't know much about them before i started working with uh barbara sorg here at, at wsu uh you know she's she's been working in this area of research for a while and uh has has kind of you know led some of this uh investigation into them um so, you know, the, the idea is that the, this perineural net, kind of this lattice or, or corset around the neuron is, is potentially physically inhibiting some of, you know, its neighboring neurons from reaching out and forming new connections with it. So you, we have our neurons, right? Or just kind of these like cells in the brain and they're sitting around with, you know, these tentacles or, or axons and, and dendrites that, that reach out. And, uh, it's that connection between a neuron and its neighboring, you know, neurons dendrite that really is what's magical. That's where, you know, these uh, neurotransmitters are being released from and, and taken up into the next cell. And without that synaptic connection, you know, nothing is being transmitted for the most part between these cells. So if, if a cell is unable to reach out and form that connection, if its plasticity is inhibited, then, uh, you know, we're, we're not seeing much of a, a memory being formed potentially. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. <laughs> I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky, I would have walked you for free. <laughs> ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Offer valid through 4322 or participate in McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. Um, so, so what does the net do? Yeah. So, so what we think the perineural net is doing is, uh, is preventing the the synapse from either forming or potentially from being withdrawn from a, a neuron. So, you know, as we're going through our day, we're forming all these new memories, right? We're like learning things and, and experiencing things. And as that happens, our, our neurons are, are reaching out and forming these synaptic connections. And it's that that is probably important to the creation of a new memory. So, you know, synapse A says hi to synapse B and they're like, okay, that's right. We're going to remember that we had an apple for lunch today. So the perineural net is probably, in, you know, part of the system that's keeping that synapse together. So then you go on and you have dinner and you're thinking, well, I didn't have an apple. Now I had, you know, a steak or whatever. And so that perineural net might be important to remembering that lunch was apple. Mm -hmm. um, and now you have a new memory going on somewhere else. So in terms of like what we're doing with cocaine, uh, the idea is that, you know, as a, a person or a rat experiences this cocaine, they're forming a whole lot of memories about it because this is a very, you know, strong stimulus or salient event. And uh, those those memories are also being sort of cemented by this perineural net. Now, if we go in and we disrupt that net, it might allow those cocaine synapses or those cocaine memories to sort of, you know, dissipate or to be overwritten by a new memory. And, and that would be really important for a, uh, a person or a rat to forget about its, uh, its cocaine habit.
does this happen naturally um, as well? Um, just to, uh, within the brain. Oh these, yeah, these nuts must be. Um, uh, this this process must must be happening. No, is is this just part of memory loss? Um, oh yeah, so I mean, ages? so so it looks like these perineural nets are are really present in our brain, like from pretty early on in development. There's a a really interesting study that first kind of showed the the role of these perineural nets in plasticity. Um, from the early 2000s, this was an Italian group uh, led by a guy named Pizarizzo. Pizar- yeah, Pizarizzo. <laughs> and uh, so, so what that group showed was that uh, as a rat ages, it it forms a, a preference in its ocular dominance, or, or its brain is responding preferentially to you know stimuli from its left or right visual hemisphere. And so, as this happens, you know, neurons in the visual cortex will kind of remember that preference and they'll cement it in. Uh, with these perineural nets, or you'll see this increase in perineural nets around these neurons. Now, what Pizarruzzo did is showed that if they went in and uh, and disrupted these perineural nets, they were able to reopen this period of ocular dominus plasticity and actually reassign which neurons in the visual cortex were responding to, you know, which stimuli in the visual hemispheres. So even after the rat had, you know, cemented in this visual memory. Uh, they could they could reopen this plasticity, and so this opened up the door to uh, to perineal nets be involved in all sorts of plasticity. Right? This is this is probably a, a process or a principle that's that's common among a lot of different brain functions. So we kind of use some of the same ideas that uh, that a neuron is is cementing its um, its memory or its synaptic uh, plasticity with these perineal nets, and if we go in and we disrupt that net. Uh, using some specific enzymes, then we might be able to reopen uh, that that memory formation. So, so you're disrupting them using specific en- enzymes. Is there is there like uh, any foods that we eat or something like that <laughs> yeah. that disrupt these normally? Well, you know, it's it's a, a regulatory process that that happens all the time in our brains, right. right? These are these are kind of increasing and decreasing, probably in fluctuation. Actually, maybe even throughout the day, uh, as you as you form that memory about an apple, maybe your nets increase, and eventually down the road, you want to forget about that lunch because you know you have lunch tomorrow too, uh, and so those those nets might be eaten up. The enzyme... I never want to forget about that apple. <laughs> That's, yeah, it's a really important thing to remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're using an enzyme called chondroitinase ABC, and it, it you know it's just one of these that goes in and eats these these. Uh, <laughs> these parts of the perineural net, these uh, chondroitin protoglycans. Um, and, you know, it's it's probably doing a lot. It's kind of like a sledgehammer approach, but it's a really effective way to at least, you know, see what these perineural nets are involved with. How are you targeting the specific area? So so our experiments are kind of interesting, you know, because we'll, we'll try to get our rats to respond in a, in a behavioral setup, right? So we'll We'll give them a chance to try cocaine and actually to like self-administer it. So this is, you know, not that dissimilar from how a person might take cocaine like at a, a party or something, right? They're they're giving it to themselves. So our rats do the same thing. They're pressing a lever and receiving an injection of it. And over time, you know, they kind of form that memory that like, oh, yeah, this lever means cocaine and that's good. So what we'll do is we'll give a rat a chance to to form that memory and then we'll go in and we'll inject this chondroitinase ABC into a you know a specific part of the brain. We're we're tending to look at kind of the the prefrontal cortex, and we're actually focused in on an area called the prelimbic prefrontal cortex. And, you know that's 
we think that this is really important to uh, to drug addiction or drug behaviors because it's it's tied in very closely to a lot of these reward centers. So if we can, you know, disrupt a memory about cocaine in this kind of reward center focused area, then you know we think we could maybe disrupt that behavior. And it turns out we can actually in a lot of times. Uh, you know, we can uh, we can give this chondroitin ACBC like as a rat is learning about the cocaine behavior and and prevent that memory from really forming or solidifying. And then it turns out we can actually uh, give that chondroitin ACBC later on down the road and disrupt the the rat's recall of that of that cocaine memory. And so that's really important, like from a treatment standpoint. Are there any unwanted effects from, yeah, from doing this? I, I don't think I would go do it to myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this you know this this enzyme that we're using is just really, uh, really strong. It's it's going to disrupt like all of the extracellular matrix that's surrounding these neurons, and you know that's of course a problem because this, you know this extracellular matrix is probably holding our neurons in place to some extent. You don't want everything just sloshing around. <laughs> uh, so yeah you know that's that's one of the interesting parts of this research is is how to find a more effective tool right like we're looking for the scalpel now rather than the sledgehammer mm-hmm. uh and, and so we've actually gone down that road a little bit we're looking at ways to potentially you know target just the gene that encodes for you know a part of these perineural nets if we can knock down that gene you know maybe we can disrupt a memory you know something along those lines of course, it's, you know, it's really hard when you start thinking about the difference between a rat and a human. You know, first off, the, you know, the rat isn't experiencing much in its life other than like this week that it gets to go self-administer cocaine. And it's like, oh, that's really cool. You know, yeah. I've got a whole lot more going in my day. So, you know, it's, it might be harder for us to target a memory in humans. Mm-hmm. And also just, you know, the kind of the... Uh, invasiveness of going in and injecting this into a certain region of the brain like that's not something that we can do in humans right now so you know the the therapeutic potential for this is definitely there it's just a matter of figuring out how to make it happen i mean uh what's nice about the rats is they don't have to make calls to really sketchy people at 3 a.m in the morning they that's just, right you just have driving it there out to <laughs> for them <laughs> and that's pretty nice so so potentially so Human trials of something like this are a ways away. Yeah, but, you know, I, the, the concept, I think, is really interesting. Uh, just that we can help a memory sort of become uh, less salient or help that memory dissipate um, just through, you know, this physical disruption of, of part of the, you know, this neural complex. So when you talk about hitting it with a sledgehammer and maybe turning it into soup, are they... Are there any tests that you, are they forgetting other aspects of their lives as well? Are like are they being trained anything else at the time that they're then forgetting how to do? Yeah, I mean that's that's a really good question, and I think that would be one of the bigger concerns, you know, with this sort of treatment in humans. Like, you know, if uh, if I'm trying to help you forget about the cocaine you were doing, you might also forget about the party you're at and all the friends that you had there. I don't, know, you know, just right. to <laughs> try to assume what's going on. But uh, you know, with these rats. With, with these sorts of experiments, we want to be very careful to, to target just that one memory. And we try, you know, as hard as we can to isolate uh, in an experimental, experimental context just that one memory. Um, and so, you know, we do that by, by training the rat to use cocaine in like a, a unique environment um, or, you know, giving them some cues about the cocaine that are, you know, really specific to it because we want to help them recall, you know, just that one memory. But yeah, again, you know, it would be, It'd be challenging to potentially do that in a human. Although, you know, there are some context or there's some 
there are some people who are using the same idea, not with, you know, chondroitin ACE ABC and perineural nets, but, you know, as, as a potential therapy for, you know, people suffering from like, uh, PTSD. Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea of, uh, you know, exposure therapy and, you know, kind of recalling a memory and then finding a way to help dissipate the strength of that memory. You know, that's a, a really powerful treatment approach. So what does a rat do after this treatment? So it's all, it's learned cocaine use and then you put it back in this environment with, with cocaine. How is its behavior different? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of the times what we'll see is a, a rat will not press the lever as much for cocaine. And that's, you know, ultimately what we're looking for is to see that we've helped them, you know, dissipate this memory to some extent. Uh, after that, you know, we really try to go in and look at the brains pretty quickly because uh, we want to know, you know, how how are their brains changing at the neuronal level? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, you don't see much behavior then. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, about your company, Rewire Neuroscience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rewire is, is something we started about two years ago. Um, you know, really trying to take a page out of NASA's playbook to some extent. Like NASA does a really good job of developing technology and then making sure that it gets out into the, you know, community and into, uh, the science community's hands. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's how, that's how we all know about, uh, LEDs. And, uh, I want to say Tang, but I'm actually pretty sure that NASA didn't develop Tang. It's just whatever, you know, like Tang and duct tape, right? That's what NASA meant. No, <laughs> I don't think they did. But, uh, but NASA does a really good job of, you know, getting these technologies out there. And so we wanted to, we wanted to try to capture that in our lab. You know, we're doing some really interesting things, but other than, you know, when we talk about them in, published papers, they don't really see a lot of, of daylight. And so, you know, the people that are reading our publications are, are a pretty small subset of, <laughs> of the humans out there on Earth. So, uh, so Rewire is trying to take some of that technology and, uh, and get it out into other people's hands. So one of the things that we're doing is, is, uh, working to, to develop some of the analysis software that we use. So after we take these, these brains out of our rats, uh, we're looking at, you know, these perineural nets. And to do that, we have, uh, you know, some really complicated microscopes and, and software that, uh, you know, go in and, uh, are able to quantify the intensity of these paranormal nets. And the way that we do that is, is something that artificial intelligence is really good at doing. So we developed a program called Pipsqueak and, uh, Pipsqueak goes in and quantifies those cells. And, and what we want to do is bring this artificial intelligence technology to other labs so that they can use it or potentially to other industries. You know, maybe this is something that, uh, clinicians could benefit from finding, you know, a specific tissue type and, and quantifying it somehow in, in their, you know, patients. Uh, and so, you know, this is, this is a new venture for us. And I think it's kind of a new model for science, finding a way to, to get our discoveries out there faster. Um, what about, what about those, like, uh, cocaine boxes and, and, and putting them in factories or something for the, for, <laughs> away for factory? I, yeah. I used to do factory work, so <laughs> I, I probably could have used a meth box or whatever at the time. That's the big, that's the big, uh, uh, use of yeah. methamphetamines these days is people doing, it, it wasn't, fortunately, for me, it wasn't around when I was doing factory work, but now everyone's like so bored with monotonous labor that robots haven't taken over. That that's what it's. Yeah. So well, I don't know if we develop those that. boxes <laughs> and, and <laughs> so to help you like dice up the chicken or whatever it is that. 
it's going to be like in the same line of products as the the drug app finding your <laughs> drug preference <laughs> so um yeah you know it's uh that's probably not the direction i want to go right now but those are really <laughs> wait, good thoughts wait, yeah, yeah. <laughs> again just spitball <laughs> i i get a lot of in my life when i offer suggestions to people i get a lot of yeah that's probably not the direction <laughs> <laughs> and that's why oh, i don't have a real job put a pin in that <laughs> Um, so what are give a few other examples of some of the products yeah so so washington state university's uh you know been really supportive of of what we're doing and they've been you know helping us uh kind of get this company off the ground so uh we're we're actually developing a couple other products uh one is a box to help us you know measure some of these behaviors in our rodents uh you know we wanted to we wanted to see what happened to these perineural nets when we sleep deprived the rats um, and you know, so we, we kind of built a better mousetrap, right? We built a better behavioral chamber and, uh, realized that was something that other people could benefit from. So, so, you know, that now that's out there and, uh, and actually we have this. So now more people can sleep deprived. <laughs> this, yeah. This would be the opposite of your meth box. This is, yeah. <laughs> sleep depriving them. <laughs> How does that work? How do you sleep deprive a rat? Well, you know, so this, this really goes back to like what we were trying to study with the nets. Uh, we wanted to know like how much they fluctuated just throughout a rat's day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and part of that was, you know, figuring out if they are changing during the sleep cycle. And so we needed to stop, you know, a period of sleep in these rats. And, um, the way that you do that is that you hire an undergraduate and they sit there with a paintbrush and they tickle the rat every time it stops starts falling asleep <laughs> and that goes on for hours and hours so you know this isn't nobody wants to do that your your undergrad's gonna quit and you won't get any data and then you know so we're like okay we the need the paintbrush it. industry is gonna fall apart <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> so we we developed a, a chamber that's really simple you know it, it basically takes our rat's home cage and uh it just has a little wheel that rolls back and forth and, uh, you know, disturbs the rat every time that happens. <laughs> and so this was, you know, it was a really, a really interesting idea and it worked very well. Um, and it kind of came together organically in our lab. There was a, a, another guy in the lab named Ryan Todd, uh, who, you know, did a lot of the development and engineering to, to make this thing happen. And, and WSU, you know, supported us all the way through it. So they're, you know, helping us with the patent process now and, uh, you know, helped us with some some startup funds to get that going. So so eventually everyone will be able to sleep deprive their rats. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a brave new world yeah. we're, we're looking into. Um, so, so you work with neuroplasticity, but... It seems like when I read about neuroplasticity, some people are so excited about it, and this uh, this is just one of the greatest uh, um, things in science. If we can just figure out more about this neuroplasticity stuff, maybe we can stop the brain from aging. And then some people uh, think that uh, a lot of the findings are are uh, there's too much excitement about it, and and neuroplasticity isn't um, that. it isn't the brain isn't as placid as as we wish that it that it was um is that uh like within the actual uh when you're actually talking to a neuroscientist what what is your kind of thoughts on neuroplasticity in general how how placid is the human brain you know what always comes to mind when thinking about neuroplasticity is just how how good the brain is at recovering from assaults or from injury. You know, mm-hmm. there is <laughs> every uh, every 
undergraduate in psychology knows this case of a guy named Phineas Gage. Oh, yeah. Right. And so he was like some, you know, railroad worker like way back when uh, who had this like spike go through his his head. And he's just like walking around with this huge piece of iron sticking out of his head. And yeah, he he like hit the dynamite or something wrong with his <laughs> that's yeah, so, yeah. It blew it through his brain yeah and you know he was he was fine or, or you know all the the people you see on youtube who are like shooting apples off of each other's heads with bows and arrow and you know they once in a while it. that goes wrong <laughs> yeah just once in a while <laughs> only that, when you're in the meth box beforehand <laughs> that's the apple that you definitely want to remember don't i want to remember to never put that apple on my head again that's right or eat it i mean it's probably pretty gross at that point um you know so it's so the brain the brain is really good at dealing with a lot of these assaults and part of the reason is that it can remap itself um you know if you if you have a, a gauge go through or a, 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 a bar go through your head like Phineas Gage, then other parts of the brain might pick up some of the slack. Uh, you know, whereas if we didn't have any sort of neuroplasticity, you wouldn't see the, the brain recover or remap in that same way. You know, the same thing shows up with, uh, with people who have received an amputation, like some of the synapses or some of the, the sensory uh, inputs that have come from maybe that arm or that leg are actually remapped to different parts of the body because, you know, the brain doesn't want to just sit there idle. It wants to keep working. And so, you know, that's, that's of course, really important. Uh, but then, you know, in the memory context, but w- what we're looking at here with, with neuroplasticity is, is, of course, really important. If, you know, we didn't see the synapses changing between these neurons, then we might not be forming memories or at least not in the same way. And, uh, and then you wouldn't remember that apple. So what do you think the future of this work is? Is there going to be like, uh, what's the movie eternal sunshine, or, or the spotless <laughs> yeah. mind or whatever, See. where you can, I can be like, I don't like that memory of, of, uh, <laughs> that ex-girlfriend getting, of that, yeah. uh, of the titty twister I got in high school from the, <laughs> from, from the guy who I thought was my friend. Yeah, yeah. that guy's dead to you. He <laughs> yeah, erased yeah. his entire existence. <laughs> is yeah. there? Is there? Do you think that in the future we'll be able to um, pinpoint? Uh, people talk a lot about um, rewiring the brain through use of like mantras or, or <laughs> you, you know th- things yeah. like that, where you're kind of reprogramming. I like your use uh, of rewire there. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where where uh, something like well, you say PTSD, but something mm-hmm. like. Um, Something like anhedonia, or so, where you have this kind of learned helplessness. Yeah, um, this might not be another aspect of of. Uh, if, I, I wonder if you could figure out a way to unlearn. <laughs> I don't know how. I imagine that goes back pretty far. But do you think that in the future we'll get more and more kind of specific with exactly what, um, what these. Of how to target these nets and and yeah. when when um, altering them and changing the plasticity might be beneficial and and when it's harmful. I mean, it's it's probably not that crazy to think you know that someday we'll be able to like really target specific areas of the brain you know for some sort of therapy or treatment. Uh, you know, with with advancements in like you know these some of these nanotechnologies, like you know. Maybe someday we can say, like, I need a drug treatment to go to just the prelimbic prefrontal cortex and nowhere else. And, you mm-hmm. know, in that case, then you know, we can really make some of these technologies a reality or some of these treatments a reality. Um, 
you know, whether whether or not we're doing it with perineural nets, I don't know. You know, some of this research that we're doing is just so important to kind of understanding how the whole system works, right? You know, just to, to under, you know, since it's kind of been a long time since uh, uh, since Cajal or uh, since Golgi was first talking about these perineural nets, you know, we're filling in a lot of a lot of uh, undone research. Uh, so, you know, understanding what they're doing in the brain is really important just to start and then you know, how we can turn that into a treatment or, you know, into a therapeutic uh, avenue is is kind of the next question. All right. Well, um, I, I think that, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? Um, I think that we covered most things. I, I always have my guests at the end of the show um, uh, name a nonprofit of their choice. Well, yeah, I... I I really like a nonprofit called uh, Northwest Noggin, and I think you actually had them on not too long ago. Yes. But mm-hmm. they are a, a group in the Portland area here that's just doing some really neat stuff. You know, bringing uh, out- mostly with pipe cleaners. That's <laughs> that's right. I I had not had a whole lot of exposure to pipe cleaners before starting <laughs> to work with Northwest Noggin, <laughs> and now I know exactly how to turn them into a neuron. Uh, that's, and you can even you can even make the perineural nets yeah the, that are forming in your brain i saw of someone making do that. of making the uh of pipe cleaners you're you're having those memories uh forming in your in your head and then hopefully you'll be able to treat yourself eventually to forget um <laughs> how to make pipe cleaner neurons so you can learn all over again that's right yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, Northwest Noggin is is really cool. Uh, you know, they're they're doing some really interesting things. So you know, they've I think they've got a website, Northwest Noggin or nwnoggin.org. You can see some of the stuff that they're doing. Well, that's fantastic. Well, uh, thank you, John, very much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's very interesting, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You are wonderful. Uh, curious, delightful people, at least those of you that have met, uh, the ones that I haven't met, who knows? But uh, all of you that write in and write reviews and everything else, fantastic people. Almost forgot if people want to learn more about your work, where should they go? Yeah, well, you can learn more about what we're doing with artificial intelligence at uh, rewireneuro.com or... uh click on the artificial intelligence tab there and and you'll see what WSU is doing to to bring AI to the forefront of neuroscience. All right, wonderful. And you can go to the herewearepodcast.com website and there will be links there as well. Thank you. Next week on the podcast, talking about space, I have a philosopher talking about the ethics of space exploration see we keep on mixing it up on this show getting out there into into new interesting territories learning more about a variety of subjects a bunch of cool um and unique ones coming out we have one coming out um talking about a biomedical uh technology that is groundbreaking uh really just unbelievable stuff that may very well change the world. And uh, let's see, we have a dung beetle episode coming out soon. We have um, a uh, psychology of human factors in terms of um, technology when it comes to security, like surveillance and uh, surveillance cameras um, and, and uh, the attention to watching them. 
and uh, and, and police decision making. Um, what what is affecting police uh, police officers' decisions in these very uh, clutch um, situations? Uh, <laughs> I'm not describing this well, but it was fantastic. We talked about body cams and and the different kinds of body cams and the importance of their placement and how they're being used. Um, just a, a bunch of really cool subjects coming up. So tomorrow's space. I don't think we've talked uh, about space really on this show at all. Now you get a whole episode next week. Super fun. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you fuck.